gets colder My eyes goes thin as I get older Piece in pieces, bloody and bruised I feel so helpless and confused Cause I hear screaming on the left, yelling on the right I'm sitting in the middle trying to live my Hello, and welcome to Focus on the Facts. This is Patricia Negron filling in for Evelyn Pringle today, and our special guest is Kevin Annette, who's been on with us a number of times before. Kevin is the man behind the global movement to end child trafficking and child torture and to disestablish the genocidal churches and governments. He's an award-winning filmmaker and author who works with victims of church violence and genocide all over the world. Kevin co-founded the International Tribunal of Cr- into Crimes of Church and State and the International Common Law Court of Justice in Brussels. The Common Law Court has brought two cases against the Vatican, the Crown of England, and Canada in its churches for crimes of genocide, child sacrifice, and trafficking, and they have successfully convicted all of the defendants for crimes against humanity. Using hard evidence and the Common Law Court, They forced Pope Benedict and four other top Vatican officials guilty of child trafficking to resign from their offices during 2013. In his two latest books, Unrelenting and Murder by Decree, Kevin traces the origins of genocide in Canada and globally, and he found all roads lead back to the Vatican. Kevin has a new book out titled, at the mouth of a cannon, conquest and cupidity on Canada's West Coast. And he can tell us some about that book today, along with his updates on his efforts to help hold the Pope and Vatican responsible for these crimes. I'll go ahead and bring Kevin on now. And um, I think what we'll do maybe is just, Kevin, if you wouldn't mind talking about um, what's already happened now in terms of your work with in these efforts to hold these individuals accountable and and also review if you wouldn't mind the um, church document where uh, the officials said that they would no longer cooperate with the Vatican policy of non prosecution, I believe it was, or correct me if I, if I got some of that wrong, but um, why don't you come on, on and uh, give us the update to what you're doing. Okay, thank you, Patricia, and it's good to be back, and uh, especially now in this new year where there's so much beginning to open up again. Um, why don't I start with, with, you know, it'll lead into your whole question very easily by talking about a recent event, and um, our website, itccs.org, has been taken down. Uh, we're trying to get it back up, but it's, it's a sign of kind of the counterattack happening the closer we get to these crimes. Uh, but normally on that, people could see these updates, and I'll, I'll tell you about the update now. What happened uh, in Rome recently was that um, it was disclosed. It was, it, we have a number of people inside the Vatican who have been providing information over the years, including a fellow who actually released uh, that document called Crimen Solicitanus, which is the binding policy in the Catholic Church. When children are raped, everybody is to be silent about it, not to tell the police and to silence everyone. And if they talk about it, they're excommunicated. 
that policy was disclosed by these same sources in 2007. This source came forward recently and described how the present Pope Francis, Jorge Bagaglio, will be removed from his office before February 23rd. And that's the same weekend that this Ninth Circle Sacrificial Cult is going to hold its next international coven in Rome. There's a church called the San Lorenzo Church uh, set up by the Jesuits three centuries ago. And that's in the sub-basement crypts. That's where these sacrificial rituals occur. Now, the reason uh, that this is going on is because um, the... Bergoglio, Pope Francis, tried to call a meeting in early January. He knew he was getting uh, more and more of his opponents were gathering, so he called all the bishops of the world to come to Rome for a conclave. Over half of them ignored him, which was unbelievable. This never happened before to uh, any bishop of Rome, that he was ignored that way. And uh, the guy who organized the the attempted conclave of the bishops, his name is Cardinal Mark Ouellette, from Canada. It turns out this is the same guy who was named at a Ninth Circle uh, ritual in uh, a place called Marie Rendement Cathedral in, in Montreal, Canada. That service was actually broken up because there were people at the church protesting it, so they didn't hold it, but Ouellette was there, and he's a prominent member of the Ninth Circle. Well, why would that guy be working with Bergoglio? It turns out that he was undoubtedly sabotaging the thing because the Ninth Circle want Bergoglio out of office because he himself was involved as far back as Argentina when he was a bishop. He was doing these Ninth Circle rituals um, in, in Buenos Aires, and um, he's so pub, uh, connected now that the, he's too, got too visible a profile, so they want him out, and this is going to happen before February 23rd. So the interesting thing about that is that it, it's coming apart from the inside, and, and this is what happens when these crimes come out. And um, an example of that is what you mentioned in the introduction, there's a group called Not In Our Name, which is actually a coalition of Catholic priests all over the world. They're in eight countries now. And I've met with them in Ireland and in Belgium. And these guys have been stirred very deeply by all the evidence we brought out. And they even include a bishop and a cardinal in Rome, who, of course, are staying anonymous. And they want to clean up. They want to get rid of this policy, uh, you know, protecting child rapists, uh, in the church, they have a lot of dirt, a lot of information about how these crimes go back centuries. And um, they are saying to the people, they released a statement, which, uh, you know, people write to me at thecommonland.gmail.com. I can send you all of this stuff. Um, in their statement, they say that uh, they are not going to go along with this policy of crime and solicit tennis that orders them to cover up child rape. They're going to report any known child abuser and an incident of child rape to the local authorities. Uh, and if, they're try- if the local bishop tries to stop them, they're going to ignore the bishop and separate and continue to operate their, you know, in their pastoral offices, but not paying dues to the Catholic Church. In other words, it's a declaration of independence, that they will go their own way if they're asked to commit the- these crimes. So this is kind of like what happened 500 years ago with the Reformation, uh, Patricia. You know, it's, it's this renewal and and uh, you know an example of it when i was last in dublin ireland considered the most loyal catholic nation on earth i went into pro cathedral which is the main catholic cathedral downtown normally seats about 500 people i counted 32 in the pews all older people and i mean that's a sign of the crisis shaking the whole church yeah you know i saw um a post today on social media that compared 
the a pope a papal visit from I think 1979 or something like that mm-hmm. to one in 2018, and the the streets were empty, like exactly what you said, dotted with you know a handful of individuals, whereas there were you know before there were throngs of followers. So, um, what do you see? So, it now now that the the pressure is coming to bear from inside, Kevin. What are we? What do you think are is happening, sort of on a more broad scale, in terms of the church itself? Are you seeing any changes there? Like, so on the outside, we see lower um, turnout for church services and support for the church, and then growing awareness of what's going on. And now you've talked about the um, the group of priests who are opposing the um, non-prosecution of rapists. So is there, um, Evelyn had mentioned the last time when we had you on, there was a group of nuns who was also seen to be doing some work to combat this issue in the church. Are there any other things going on you're aware of internally? There's lots, and, you know, we often get this from small groups of people, maybe two, three, four, you know, and so it, but it's seeds of something really new happening. Um, we know that uh, in America, one of the, the, the source in the Vatican said the biggest boycott of the Pope's call to come to Rome in January came from America. Literally, very few of the American bishops even responded. That's because in America, of course, people can be a Catholic, but like, for example, 95% of American Catholics use birth control. They just kind of ignore these old like policies, right? But it's broader than that. It's they have in their mind as well this American Republic, uh, the idea that church and state are separate, um, and the the Vatican should not be favored. Like in with all of these laws in America that are helping the Catholic Church, like the. Uh, financial concordat, where American taxpayers' money is channeled directly to the Vatican Bank without their knowledge. Um, the policy where police are not to intervene when crimes occur on church property. You know, it's like they're a law unto themselves. And uh, I remember one guy, when I was doing um, work with the um, the native people in Washington State, they were describing a Jesuit school in Omak, Washington, where they saw children being buried at night by the priests as recently as the 1970s. And they went to the FBI to try to dig up the ground. The FBI refused to investigate a crime scene because they said you need permission from the church. Well, since when do you go to the serial killer and ask for permission to dig under his house? But there's two laws, and a lot of Americans at a visceral level are disgusted by that, and they don't want there to be these two laws anymore. And in response, the church is doing an enormous PR campaign, and that's why Bergoglio was brought in in the first place to replace Ratzinger. You know, everyone hated Ratzinger. He looked evil, right? But now you bring in smiley-faced Francis, you know, strategically taking the name Francis like Francis of Assisi. That's been the whole media spin that this guy's some kind of second coming. In fact, the grandfather's smile is to... to, uh, The Beneficent smile always covers up even worse crime. And uh, we know his whole baggage from Argentina being seen in Nine Circle Rituals by survivors. All of that's... um, you know, documented now. So I think, in you know, we're seeing that we're going to see more of this, and people are asking fundamental questions now about, you know, uh, do we even need these churches? People can practice their faith without having the big money and the crime attached to it, right? Right, 
Right. You know, one of the things um, that I, I'm sure you've seen uh, the Yellow Vest movement taking off um, in Europe. And one of the things, you know, that I think I, I'm sure you faced and, and can recognize is the issue of um, the groups who are rebelling against the same um, forces without recognizing that that's what they're doing. So, for example, people who are upset about, you know, child rape are fighting the same individuals um, that those opposed to war are fighting or those opposed to, you know, all of these other problems in our world. And and what you're talking about, like even just mentioning, you've talked about this financial cordat many times, and it's a horrifying reality that I think most people, including myself, can't really wrap my head around. And one of the things that just came to mind was, you know, this need for us to ally with others who are fighting not necessarily the same issues, but the same evil forces. And um, this makes me think of, you know, we currently now have this issue with Israel and all of this funding, uh, taxpayer funding, going to Israel without, you know, this is being decided by people who have direct conflicts of interest. And so you mentioned the financial concordat, and that seems like a great way to pull together, you know, these two different seemingly unrelated groups of individuals, um, activists, around that central theme of theft (laughs) and organized crime. And exactly. And in really- fact, it's a great issue to mobilize people on because people are concerned about their taxes and about bread and butter issues of money in, in these days. And um, why should these churches, and not just the Catholic Church, but the Church of England, the United Church in Canada, you know, Episcopalians yeah. in America, they were all involved in this genocide. If we allow them tax-exempt status, we are financially underwriting genocidal bodies. That's not allowed under international law. And, and so the government's asking us all to commit crime by paying our taxes. And so these tax-exempt status need to be removed just to be in line with, with law and morality. Um, it's not, you know, we're hating Catholics or we're trying to dump, wreck these churches. They've wrecked themselves by their behavior. We're just trying to live our lives according to what's right. And um, I think well, your first point is really important about making these alliances because, um, in fact, we are dealing very much with the same big money machine. Um, we found that out very quickly in the work I was doing on the west coast of Canada initially, and I'm going to get to that book you mentioned at the mouth of a cannon, but um, we found very quickly that the same um, church bodies that were trafficking children were very connected to offshore criminal bodies that were trafficking drugs and arms. And uh, it's a, the thing about child rape and, and trafficking is that it's a huge global industry. It's a big cash cow. And, um, you know, and, and so when you're, it isn't just that the church does these things, they're locked into a whole global industry and uh, profit from it. So that's one, being one of the reasons that it's been hard to take it on initially, because there's so much money and support behind it. Um, and yet that's their big weakness. The bigger your opponent, the more vulnerable they are, because they're afraid. <laughs> of losing everything they've got. So they're, they're very easy to provoke. Uh, we found that out when we first began to do protests at the churches in Canada. Um, w- literally the week after we occupied the main Catholic cathedral in Vancouver, Holy Rosary, um, 
the, the church and the government started talking about issuing apologies about the Indian residential schools. That was in early 2007. So they're afraid um, about losing their money. And that's why one of the things in, in our this latest release is that we've done up um, a, a special flyer that's going around all over the world in five different languages. And it's we're, we hand it out to Catholics all over the place. Um, and it's entitled Stop the Slaughter of Children and Appeal to All Catholics. It basically says, like I mentioned before, that when you give money to the church, you're funding crime. And under law, no one is obligated to to, to do that. So on the back, it says, Pledge of Non-Cooperation uh, with Criminal Churches. I, and then you write your name, acting in faith, in faith and in good conscience, do hereby pledge to disassociate myself from the Roman Catholic Church, uh, especially their policy of crimen solicitanus. Until these policies and practices are abolished, I will not fund, tithe, or otherwise financially subsidize the Roman Catholic Church. You sign it, date it, put it in the collection plate. And we found in the past that when you start doing this, they freak because it's their money. And that's their main concern, the money and the public image. That's really all they're concerned about. I know, having been in court with these guys, that that's their only concern. They don't care about their morality or their professed religion. It's about the money. And so that's the way we can unite people to really have an effect, you know. So this is normally available on your website, which is down right now? Is that um, where you said... Yeah, ICCCS.org. It's been up for years. It's under major attack, and people in Europe are trying to get it back up. In the meantime, though, like I say, there's another site we have, murderbydecree.com. And you can and uh, there's also... Um, uh, people can write to me, thecommonland, gmail.com. I'll send you all this stuff. But there's another site, um, you probably know the Patreon, where people can pledge money and support for different campaigns. If you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and then put after a slash, Kevin Daniel Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T, you come up and you'll see all of the postings on that site as well. So that's another way people can stay in touch till we get the other site back up. And and they can find that um, memo or note to, that they could use themselves to put into the collection plate. Is is there a version, a digital version on there? There, there not yet. But like I say, it, there's a simple way to get it. I can just send it out in an email to folks. Oh, okay, got it. I sorry, I just was. Yeah. Um, we can. We've had people run this off, and they're already doing it um, at churches all over the world. They're translating it and handing it out. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant idea. And um, I, I've been so slow to pick up on this. I, I think, you know, one of the things in my own work that I'm constantly trying to do, like I mentioned earlier, is find ways to connect all these little, these, you know, activist groups in a way that really overwhelms this center of power. And um, and so this, it, it seems like, you we're really narrowing in on this, and I think with the the yellow vest movement um, brings that into sharp focus that it really is all around these banking and money interests that uh, we have to focus our efforts and you know again, as you point out, the Catholic Church cares about the money that's their bo- mm-hmm. that's their bottom line is <laughs> the money and so that's yeah. where you know that's really where we have to focus and um just like with the yellow vest, they're going and withdrawing all their money from the banks. We, you know, we have to take their power away from them, and, and their power is their money. 
So um, exactly. that, that's a really brilliant idea, and I, and I, you know, I, I really want to to participate in this myself. So good, um, and you know, there's some broadening out from that, not just individual action, but start pressuring the governments, saying cancel the tax exempt status of these churches. That's the law, because under taxation laws in America and Canada, both. Um, a charitable body that doesn't pay taxes, like churches, have to put 100% of the revenue, not some but all of their money that they earn, into either the advancement of religion or charitable causes. Now, I mean, we did a study of this. In 2013, the Catholic Church brought in about $14 billion in America, just from the revenue. And only 1.5% of that went to charity. So automatically they should lose status right there because they're breaking the law. You know, right. money's going to, into their in corporate investments, um, to the mafia, as we know. You know, it's like, it's a big money-sucking business, and it's not a charitable body from its own actions, yet the government keeps covering for them. So calling them on that, first of all. And also, um, you know, it's, it's like, uh, when you do this, you realize right away there's two issues that people kind of pull back from psychologically. Child abuse and taking on churches, right? Because... Even atheists say, well, I don't know, there's something kind of different about churches, isn't it? Aren't they kind of like supposed, aren't they like moral bodies? Aren't they doing good works? Um, it's, it's a great cover for any criminal to hide behind that. And they've done it historically. But, and also child abuse, it's like, it's hard to mobilize people on those two issues. I mean, um, because it's, it's getting close to how a lot of us are raised, you know, to be afraid, to be a subordinate to be afraid of even taking on a father figure, like a so-called pope or a president right. or whoever, right? So that's a roadblock, but, and that's why the campaign's been slow at, at first, but it's gaining momentum now because the people in the system themselves are beginning to revolt. And so, Kevin, when you're talking about applying pressure around the loss of um, tax evict status, are you still there? Yep, yep. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Where, you know, I think, again, what immediately comes to my mind is this idea like, oh, yeah, so who do I even talk to that would, that where it would have an impact? Like, how how do you go about doing that in a visible way that embarrasses the officials into doing something? Is is approaching the um, church membership themselves, again, the the way to go about that, do you think? Well, people worry when they hear about losing their tax-exempt status, they, they, they immediately start, start squawking, well, we're going to collapse, we'll go bankrupt. That, that really isn't true, because most churches can support themselves just from the local givings. And, you know, again, I, when I was a minister on Vancouver Island, I said, the first week I got there, my church board came to me and said, okay, you've got to go do a uh, visitation to, to get money out of people. And I said, no. People will contribute when we're doing something good. We've got to build up the work first, then people will see that it's something they want to support. And um, it's that way, too. If if the church is doing its right job and is not involved in all this crime, the community will support it. And so there's no need for tax exemptions, right? There's no need to right. operate like a business in the first place. That's what we can say to people in the church. Like, the Christian church started in people's homes as little cell groups, you know, they did all of the stuff about church institutions. It's all politics. It's got nothing to do with, you know, you know, Christ right, saying yeah. where two or three are gathered, there I am. Well, that's all you need. And that's something people intuitively understand, I think. 
but at the political level, we're talking about making an issue during election campaigns, about uh, going, finding out in America, it's the IRS and Canada, the Canada Revenue. These are actually offshore corporations. They're not government bodies at all. But corporations, uh, with, if you're not in a contract, contractual relationship with a corporation, they have no authority over you. Um, there's nothing obligating you to pay money to the IRS. Even if there's an American law, there's actually an amendment to the Constitution that, that taxes income. But there's a higher law beyond uh, statute, and that is, um, do I have any obligation to this corporate body? No, you don't. Not unless you sign a contract with them and you have a mutually benefiting relationship. So there's a whole basis to say, no, people don't have to pay taxes, especially when they're involved in this criminal you know, helping these criminal churches. So there's lots of creative ways to do this publicly. It's just a matter of kind of educating people first and then taking some, some steps. And we've, we've got a whole history of, of doing that, and, and we've written some handbooks, common law handbooks, whistleblower hand manual, all the stuff that people can all find online at Amazon.com. Just put in my name, Kevin Annett. Great. So what are... What are some of the things that are happening now? Um, do, are you aware of what was going on with this group of nuns in the um, church that Evelyn had mentioned last time? Yeah, I, I, some of the folks I know in the States, I had them look into that, and um, they weren't able to kind of find the group. Maybe they didn't look in the right place, but um, I don't have more kind of information on that particular group, but... You know, from what I know, there's so much discontent, especially among nuns, because they're they're always getting the short end of the stick. They're expected to be the housekeeper and the the maid for the priests. They're I mean, I, I knew a woman, Yvonne Mays, who is a nun in Canada. She got raped, uh, serially raped by the bishop and the priest in her congregation in Montreal, in in Quebec. And um, she wrote a book about it. They they did to her what they did to me. They just uh, what the United Church did to me, they they put her through hell because she dared to talk about this stuff. So, you know, that, that kind of abuse within the Church is especially involving nuns, and I think this is, could be an expression of that as well. Right, right. What, do you want to talk about your new book a little bit, um, since yeah. we mentioned it earlier? Yeah, it's called At the Mouth of a Canon, and that's a quote from an Indian agent in uh, the west coast of Canada in the 1870s. He's describing how uh, the British got the land from the Indians, and he said it was only surrendered at the mouth of a cannon. Now, when people hear that, they think, oh, that didn't happen in Canada, too, did it? Weren't they, the, ni- the Canadians nice to their Indians? You know, people <laughs> always say uh, Canadians are so nice. Well, in fact, it's a very hidden history. The Royal Navy actually showed up all along the west coast of Canada and were sy- systematically bombarding the native villages with cannon. They would just slaughter everybody. And and the thing is, in Canada, it's so effectively hidden because there's no independent agencies in Canada like um, a watchdog on the government. Everything is controlled through something called the Privy Council Office in London and through the Governor General in Canada, who's the actual head of state. He can remove the government at any point, one man. It's your colonial system. Well, that colonial system set up what I call the octopus, which is a three-headed corporation's church and state, and they really led the genocide. And this is what the book talks about. It shows concretely who did it and where and how. Um, And it was also the issue that got me fired originally because, and I talk about this in my book, uh, I I found out that the United Church had been 
uh, selling off land that their early missionaries had stolen from a West Coast tribe called the Ahousets. And they sold it to a company called Macmillan Bloedel, big financial backer of the United Church. But Macmillan Bloedel was about to be bought up by Weyerhaeuser in Seattle, the biggest lug-in company in the world. It was the biggest corporate takeover in British Columbia history. And I wrote a letter saying, wait a minute, we can't be selling off native land to benefit our, our business friends. That goes against our church policy. Within two weeks of me writing that letter, I was out of my can, and this whole big movement involving government, business people, the church, all got up to, got together to not only crush me and the native guy uh, who was helping me, who had knowledge of this, a chief called Earl George, but um, to bury the whole thing so effectively that nobody knows about it anymore. And so I figured it was time, like with the residential school crimes, you know, where 60,000 children were murdered uh, by these churches, it was time to bring that history alive again. And that's really, I've got documents proof, you know, all the stuff you need. So, again, it's it's a good book to kind of show how it happened on the ground, because what happened in B.C. happened, and um, it's, you know, the game plan. Right. Well, it's a clear pattern that has been played out over the centuries, you know, across the globe. You, I don't think you're hard-pressed to find anywhere it hasn't affected, and yeah. it's one that we continue to see now. I mean, you know, this this is somewhat peripherally peripheral to what you're talking about, but again, I think it helps to bring together what appear to be disparate groups. But if you think about the whole UN migration pact and the Vatican's support of that, where you know, the truth of the matter on the ground is that the vast majority of those refugees want to go home. They don't want to go to Europe or Canada or anywhere else, and they're being prevented from going home by Western allies. And it it really turned, it really is nothing more than, you know, a rich man's ploy to reorganize the population in such a way as to you know, create an advantage for them. And the, the the people we're seeing who are transferred into these countries are largely young men, and they're doing it under duress. You know, there are boys as well that are being recruited, like in, in uh, Saudi Arabia. Apparently, they brought in 14,000 young men and boys um, to do the fighting under duress. And so the, the Vatican, you know, continues to play a critical role in pushing all of these practices that are just destroying, you know, one country after another. And it seems to me that the UN Migration Pact is only the latest in that pattern that you've described. Yeah, well, the Vatican, one of the reasons it does that, of course, is because they're, they've historically been very tied, of course, to organized crime, uh, uh, Drangheta, it's called, the European Mafia that does a lot of the drug and human trafficking are called Drangheta. And their top members, they're all members of the Knights of Malta. Uh, there's that interconnect between church, state, I mean, and, and, and gangsters. I, I remember when I gave my first talk in Rome in 2009, um, I, we were doing a presentation, myself and some Native people, about genocide in Canada before this parliamentary committee in, in Italy, in Rome. And this Italian senator, this older guy, took me aside and he said, you know, what you have to know about this country is that the Vatican and the government and the mafia, they're all the same people, and their only concern is their money. 
And if you don't know that, you're lost. <laughs> yeah. And so it kind of sums it up for me because, uh, yeah, human trafficking, all of this immigration and stuff, there's big money behind it. Uh, Drangheta is very involved. We, we learned that uh, directly because when we first uncovered the Ninth Circle and traced using police and others in Europe, we traced where these children were coming from. They were all being provided, like 90% of them were being provided by Drangheta, by criminal syndicates, especially in, in, in Belgium and Holland. Um, and they were importing children from North Africa through Portugal, a place called Madeira, Portugal, uh, and found out all over Europe. Uh, we gave some of that information to Interpol, and they made raids, they arrested about a thousand people, and, and they actually released 30 children who were in cages in this basement of a Catholic church uh, near Antwerp. And oh it, it's like, it's, it's amazing, it's mind-boggling when you think of it, but yeah, that's business, definitely. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, again, it's one of those things where it's, it's such an obvious thread that runs through um, all of this misery <laughs> around the world. And yeah. uh, it, it should, I think the time has come, certainly, and I think people are ready. And, and it also strikes me, I don't, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but for me, when I, I engage with people now over the issue of child trafficking, that instead of getting the, you know, gas you know, there's no such thing kind of reaction. It's more of the gasp, like, wow, it really is a huge problem, but I have no idea what to do about it kind of thing, which is a big, is a lot of progress, I think, just having people recognize it as as the issue it is. It's true. We found the same thing, like, 10 years ago, nobody would talk about dead Indian children in Canada. Now it's acknowledged. It's like, you know, the hundredth monkey thing, you know, that hundredth monkey story. I don't know if you know that or yeah. not. Um, Go ahead and tell it. Just to... Well, I mean, they did a, a study in, on Pacific Island. There were two different groups of monkeys, and the scientists would teach monkeys on one island a, a, a skill, and suddenly, without any communication, obviously, the monkeys on the other island would acquire that skill. Okay, And that's because every species has, and all life, has this higher consciousness. You know, people call it group mind. Some people call it God. You know, whatever. But... Um, the group mind is eventually affected. So even a few people, and we proved this in Canada, a few people persistently hammering on an issue will change the consciousness of millions. We always think, and we're taught to think by the system, that we have no power. That's how they keep us enslaved and atomized. But in fact, we have tremendous power, and I proved that. You know, just one, one guy starting this campaign 25 years ago, look where it's led. And um, we never thought we'd get a pope to resign, but we did because we have the innate power, um, you know, within each of us, there is the, there, you know, when Christ said the kingdom is within us, that power of the universe uh, and knowledge of it is within each one of us. We just have to tap into it. And, um, and that's why the, the next step in this movement is not just education, but then leading by example, saying, okay, here's what we can do. That's why we wrote the manuals uh, on training people in the common law, uh, there's movements all over America now. There's a, a thing called the Community Environmental Defense Legal Fund. And what they do is they go into communities and they get people to form uh, what are called um, local uh, common law charters, uh, and they establish l- local home rule so that the people in one community have the power to bring in their own laws. 
And Pennsylvania, they've done this uh, to try to stop the fracking wells there that are wrecking the water sources. And so America especially, it's founded on that notion that the people are sovereign and they can establish the government. Government is not sovereign over us. We establish governments because we're sovereign, men and women. And, and so we can do that again. And it's, time, it's almost like uh, reviving the American Revolution again, right? Very much. And, and I, it's exciting to be in America working when I'm there. Because people have that innate idea, whereas in Canada, we're all, you know, you're taught to believe you're a, quote, subject of the crown. And people wouldn't even dare to imagine they could take on authority. I mean, you get that all the time in Canada. But although I don't want to generalize, there's exceptions to that. But that Republican tradition of self-governance in America is a real powerful weapon we have in this. Because we're just teaching Americans what they already know, I think, but they've just never practiced, really. Well, and I think also, you know, again, this whole um, uh, process by which groups, as they arise to combat the corruption, have been effectively neutralized and divided against one another. And um, the U.S. is a perfect example of that strategy working very effectively. And so, uh, but I also see sort of along the lines of what you've pointed out, is that probably because of that innate sensibility, um, it seems to me that Americans are really sort of reaching out, trying to find ways to connect with one another on on these issues and and fight back more effectively. So I'm really very optimistic and hopeful. I see things, Kevin, you know, it seems like when the pressures really start to build against these individuals that they lash out more and more and that there are more casualties um, that seem to accumulate. And I wondered if you're seeing anything like that as a result of the, you know, panic among officials. Oh, yeah. Like we just had a case a couple of days ago, one of our common law sheriffs in Ireland there's a video of him, which I can send to people. He's, he was helping a family who were being illegally evicted. Suddenly the police and these private security goons show up, and they're literally kicking him and beating him on the ground in front. And uh, Kevin Taylor, his name is, he's a great guy. I met him. Uh, you see, in Dublin, they formed a common law assembly. The people have formed their own government. And you have 5,000 people in the streets. It's called Take Back the City. And they have homeless families that move into empty buildings and just take them over. And uh, the gov- Irish government and their offshore billionaires who run them, uh, they're very worried about this, right? That people are taking action in their own name now. And so they target individuals. That will always happen. Um, but that's a sign of our success and their, their panic that they, they're, they're resorting to that. Um, one of the things that we know how they divide and conquer is, this is a, um, the FBI call it bad jacketing. Uh, in, if you go to Amazon.com, order our book, um, the uh, whistleblower's manual, because we document in there how divide and conquer happens. This bad jacketing technique, the FBI used to destroy the American Indian movement and the Black Panthers. What you do is you put a bad jacket around the best leaders. You start circulating rumors. Oh, you know, they're, they're doing drugs, they diddle kids, uh, whatever. And right. you get everyone fighting each other and suspecting. You create such a climate of suspicion that... Uh, people wipe themselves out from within. The organization destroys itself. And that, it, it's very effective when people are ignorant of these tactics. But as soon as you, you get alert, taught about these things, you can spot right away how it's happening. So there's, there is ways we can arm ourselves and defend ourselves against these attacks.
that's a really good point. And, and I, and that's another, um, <clears throat> very positive development that I've been seeing on social media where the people are there, they, they spot the signs immediately of these, these deceptions. And it seems, you know, even, you know, 75 year old grandmothers, like it, it doesn't get past anyone who's paying attention anymore, which is really wonderful to happen. And it, it, it provides just the perfect environment, like you said, for deploying all of these methods of, you know, self-governance and reclaiming your sovereignty. These are, it's so wonderful to see this stuff happening because people are so desperate at this point. I don't, I don't know about outside the U.S., but for example, here, you know, half the nation lives in poverty. Half. Yep. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. I, it's I know, just, it's amazing. And, and yet Americans still have this notion that we're somehow, you know, number one <laughs> on anything except for, you know, being a total disaster. So, yeah. um, well, it's, I, I it's really, a bigger problem, too, you know, Patricia, about um, the world is becoming, democracy doesn't exist. It's a corporatocracy. And... You know, billionaire oligarchs, whether it's Putin or Trump or whoever gets themselves into power, these guys don't think like politicians traditionally. They are the king. You know what Louis the Fourteenth said in France: "I am the state. Uh, moi je suis l'état." It means <laughs> I'm the state. I'm not answerable to anybody. And you see that over and over. Uh, you know, it, it isn't the problem isn't with individuals. It's the system that creates them. Right? It's the, it's the fact that yeah. corporations now have more power. Than governments, um, government. A lot of government agencies are totally privatized. TSA, you know, the security at the airports. Over half of those guys don't work for the government. They work for General Dynamics, which is a private right. corporation, and they have a quota to get bag a number of people every day. Right? To to, uh, I found right. that in, in England when I was deported, this guy admitted to me uh, they were run by a company called Reliance Limited, the UK border agency. He said, "Oh yeah, we have a quota." Of people we have to deport every week. Well, you know, it's like money. It's like for private, uh, for profit, private prisons. Um, so that's the system we're 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 working under. But the, their great Achilles heel is what you mentioned: their money. When you find, do research on where the money is, and when you're up against any adversary, follow the money. That'll be their Achilles heel, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, even in France, we're seeing. Uh, there was documentation, for example, um, there, there were police uh, running up to this vehicle in France. It was the, everyone else was speaking French, and I hear the officer with the gun pointed at this guy in a street sweeper who was clearly not a threat to anyone, screaming in English, get out of the car. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, just, it's everywhere. It's this multinational police force. Now, I mean, I remember in Canada last time I was up north in British Columbia, um, you see D American DEA agents, uh, you see U.S. military guarding some of the dams. Like, it, it's, they need people to continue to believe that they're part of a nation state, that they, that they can mark a ballot and have accountable politicians, that they go to church and it's a, it's a nice institution that's helping people. These are the illusions they need that, you know, all of us to continue to believe in, so we're manacled and fed off and killed eventually, right? But it, it's, 
the reality, more and more people are waking up, and with that awareness comes uh, an eventual shift, yeah, a hundred monkey. Right, right. So with when you're talking about the Vatican and the use of public source resources um, in terms of, like, the military, for example, and police, you know, we know we know that these are being privatized by the government. And we also know that the Vatican has historically had its own hired muscle. Is that, are you, are there other opportunities in there where there are these conflicts of, you know, hired mercenaries or some privatization of their own um, security that people could go after in terms of boycotts or, you know, some of, sometimes those pressures work too. Yeah. Like for example, Monsanto, remember Blackwater there, this private army that would, right. They actually, during the Iraq war, uh, these Blackwater soldiers would be going on, not U S army, but Blackwater mercenaries attacking, you know, the Iraqis and that. But, um, Blackwater was hired by Monsanto. They're their private army for the Monsanto corporation now. Um, and the Vatican has a similar, it's a secret army. Um, they have a, what's called the Holy Alliance, which is their espionage and assassination bureau. They're the ones who actually kill people. Um, they go back 500, 400 years. Um, their, fr- their first target was Queen Elizabeth in England in the 1500s because she had taken on Rome. And, you know, uh, so, I mean, it, it's a long history of this, these armies. It isn't recent. But... Um, how you get how you expose them and boycott them and pressure um they're very sensitive they they don't like a light being shined on them and i'm sure you gotta specifically the names of these people where they live and broadcast it and that upsets them tremendously and it yes. forces them to you know to to be concerned like these you know in the wizard of oz he the little guy behind the mask uh-huh the wizard who is pulling all the strings, he's hiding behind this huge, powerful mask. And then Toto pulls the curtain, and everyone can see it's just this little jerk pretending to be this powerful wizard. And that's what people in power are like. They hide behind this appearance of power. But in fact, when you confront them as individuals, they're very mediocre, uh, very frightened, right. self-serving people. And they, they shrink when you're named. That's why we always say, you know, evil has an address. Name the names. Um, and we did that very successfully in Canada. That's why the churches collapsed and started talking about apologies and admitting stuff, because we had gone after the people who we knew were overt criminals and naming the names. So uh, they'll use the threat of a lawsuit when you start doing that. Like often when I'm on radio shows, they'll say, oh, be sure not to mention these names and we might get sued. No, you won't get sued, because the last thing they want is, the bad guys want, is for you to have them in court. They don't want anything on a public court record. They want to use the threat of a lawsuit to get you to back off. I always say, go ahead, like no one's ever sued me <laughs> over 25 years. Right. I said, go ahead, let's go into court, right? And they never do. Right. That does say a lot. It, it, yeah. it really sort of tells the whole story. Um, so, So before february 23rd you're expecting this to happen is there in terms of um pope francis in terms of any the action to that he would be removed from office do you, is this something that's happening internally or like is or where how do you see that playing out is that, i mean i understand you can't say everything but 
Yeah, but when you're, they're about to remove somebody like that in a palace coup, uh, they have to maintain the appearance of, of normalcy and calm. So he'll be doing his usual you know, public relations bits, and there won't be any indication. But in the background, he's effectively removed from power. Now, they may keep him in as a figurehead. They may bring in another guy like the conservative cardinals want this Cardinal Lorenze from Nigeria in uh, to restore the some of the stuff that Bergoglio has changed. But the thing to understand is that it's really the Ninth Circle manipulating this, because the Ninth Circle involve all the top cardinals, who are the real power in Rome. It's called the Curia, the College of Cardinals, and they run everything. Uh, popes are just figureheads. They don't really have any power. Um, and and so it'll definitely be by then. Um, but within the within the Catholic Church, a lot of people know about this. This is why, like we said earlier, the bishops voted with their feet. They didn't show up. That's never happened before in history. Right. When a pope commands bishops to come and they ignore him, right? Um, yeah. And and so that's the sign. They know his days are numbered. Otherwise, they'd be showing up, right? They don't want to go down with the ship. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So, well, and uh, in terms of the cardinals, Kevin, are these the people like the old merchant families that that are tied to the Vatican now? I mean, where did these families come from? Well, there's an old core of Italian cardinals. I mean, you know, the, the old Italian Wing. There's different factions in the Catholic Church, and one of them is the old Italian cardinals, and the Ratzinger was in with them. Um, the newer bishop, cardinals from the Third World, because don't forget, about three-quarters of Catholics are now in Africa, Asia, and uh, South America. Right. They're vir- virtually, they, the, the Catholic population in Europe and North America is plummeting, because we find that as people get more affluent, they stop going to church. They don't need the relics, they don't need the, you know, all this, the religious paraphernalia. Uh, but in the in the third world, uh, that's where a lot of the cardinals now are coming from. That's where the strength of the church is, uh, even though that's in question, too. But um, so what... Um, are those cardinals, is, so... All right, go ahead. Are, are those cardinals, you know, we see in, like, our typical government with the U.S. and having all its vassal states, right? They're, they have the appearance of being sovereign without actually being sovereign. Is that the case with those cardinals? Are they controlled by moneyed interests who, who select them in order to further the interests of a particular family? Oh, yeah. Or, like, is, okay. You get that, but, I mean, the thing about cardinals is that it's like senators in Canada. They're appointed like judges directly by the party in power. And so the political appointees, their favorite, like, you know, if you performed a good role in some way, uh, you're, you're given a, a cardinal's hat. Uh, it's, it's political favoritism. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, like I say, reflecting the, that struggle between the old Italian guys, the third world cardinals, uh, the people who want reform. I got, it was funny, because when I was in Rome in 2009, I actually got a back-channel communication from a cardinal in Genoa in the north of Italy, and he wanted to meet with me. And uh, that was right before um, it hit the press about the uh, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict's direct involvement in ordering bishops to cover up not just child abuse, but the death and trafficking of children. And uh, then the heat, you know, he backed off because the, you know, 
they were uh, circling the wagons there and worried about the impact. So, but the point is, the fact that he would do that and reach out meant that um, these guys ultimately are political animals, and they want to save their own hides, and they'll go with the wind. You know, there'll probably be a big reform movement now saying, well, pseudo-reform movement, that here's how we're going to fix the church, just like what Bergoglio was supposed to do but didn't when he came in. Right. Right. Well, and that's the thing is, when do you know it's real? And, you know, I guess when you mention these individuals in the church who are attempting to reach out and create change, um, it sounds like, though, their attempts to create change are not necessarily genuine, given their willingness to... uh, withdraw their efforts so easily. Right. I think especially when you're talking about bishops and cardinals who might pretend to support this, they're like, um, you know, like uh, people who, uh, they're implicated. You wouldn't be in that position of power unless you knew about the crimin policy of covering up child rape, unless you knew about the Ninth Circle. So they're, they're jumping ship because they know that they're guilty, too. Some priests are very naive, and I know I've worked as a minister. I used to, you know, meet priests all the time in our ministerial meetings and that. And they're very bound by their oath of loyalty to the bishop, not to the pope, but to the bishop. And um, he can do anything he wants to them, including throw them in a papal prison. Uh, and so they're, they tend to be very cautious, and yet what more and more they're realizing is, why the hell do we need Rome at all? <laughs> you know? Right. And I say, well, right. Like, oh, uh, you know. <laughs> well, and that's yeah. you know again you when trying to find ways to build support behind these efforts that immediately brings to mind you know the U.S. federal government. I mean, what the hell do we need them for? It's the mm-hmm. same. It, it's the same issue. Same in um, where did I see in Spain? They haven't had a government for months, and they're doing phenomenally well. <laughs> exactly, and that's so the whole like, emphasis on our common law training is local self-governance. That's how America started. That's how the Christian Church started. People having control of their own churches, right. their own politics, their own communities, right? And um, that's been a long fight in America between you know federal versus local power. It goes back to Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> but yeah. so that's a very vibrant movement, and that's really what we have to rely on and get people away from this thinking of oh well, we got to write to our congressman or congresswoman and you know we got to take back our own governance but that means taking back our own minds first right 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 and and when the the whole system is corrupt why would you want it in the first place right. you know what to save like just get rid of it exactly <laughs> no yeah. no well thank you so much kevin um please Please do keep us posted on your progress, and um, I'll look for those emails from you and share for people, because I think it's really the moment. uh, You to send me your email, and I'll send them to you. Okay. Will do. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you, Kevin. All the best. Bye.